0: you're listening to the limitless career podcast the show where you hear the how why and what of creating limitless careers with me just jazz i'm a multi-passionate wildly ambitious lover of tea and r&b i'm also on a mission to guide more high achievers to the careers and lives they deeply desire through coaching yeah you heard me desire no shame or secrets about it Here we boldly embrace ambition by owning, being and doing more in our careers and in each episode we break down the barriers to creating something that will make you and everyone you know step back in awe while keeping it simple. So what are you waiting for? Let's dive into the episode. Welcome to this week's episode of the Limitless Career Podcast, where we get to explore lots of ambitious and high-achieving careers. And today is no different because I have a guest,
1: Satya Bala. Hi, Satya. Hi. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. Uh, Just uh, acclimatizing back to work life after a lovely holiday. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I haven't started back on the salads yet, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I ate too much video,
0: but I'm good <laughs> oh but that's always good like who, who goes anywhere like I was about to say America but I'm like anywhere like the food is the draw like yeah. I think of the food when I'm making the booking I'm like what is the cuisine do I like it how good is it where we're staying like what are all of those spots so I, I totally get it I totally get it yeah
1: <laughs> can, can you introduce
0: yourself to our listeners
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Well, first of all, I'm very excited to be here with you, Jazz, um, and have this conversation. Uh, Yeah, so I'm Satya Bala. I um, have had a very interesting journey. I think um, I'm kind of a product of many places, both kind of personally and professionally. So I always kind of start with uh, just me. So I self-identify as a Sri Lankan Tamil woman. Um, I was born in Singapore uh, but when I was about three or four my parents moved to Sydney, Australia where I grew up and then in my early 20s I did the thing that many Aussies do which was came to London, told my mum I'd be here for 18 months and I've been here 14 <laughs> years. Um Love it, just yeah. a little longer. Yeah, just a little. Um, And yeah, kind of definitely a third culture kid, you know, hybrid cultures, identity crises here and there. Um, But uh, again, someone who I think um, I've never really felt like I fit into any boxes. So I went down the corporate route of, um, I guess, a safe-paying job. But at the age of 16, I wanted to be Alicia Keys um, and I still do as much uh, dance as I can, which is something I've done all my life. So, yeah, lots of things. But for me, um, all of that's kind of taken me to where I am now, which is making the shift from the safe uh, world of uh, uh, a professionally paid job with an employer to starting my own business had uh, to bring kind of various parts of myself together. So that's kind of a bit about me in a nutshell.
0: Amazing. I love that. And one thing, and, and listeners, you'll get this as we go a little bit deeper, but one thing I really appreciate about Satya is that you create your own spaces. You kind of just rock up yeah. to the party with all of the stuff. You stay open and you, and you just create it. And I think that was one thing that we spoke about when we first met is your work with um, My Skin, My Story. Yeah. Can you let folks know what that is?
1: Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's something that I'm really proud of and gives me a lot of joy, but also, um, you know, is a lot of work and perhaps my first real experience with community building and community organizing um to your point really I think about three oh no COVID happened so let's call it like four years ago I always forget that, <laughs> that you know, those couple of years trying to block it out um, so you know maybe around 2018 2019 I was I'd reached a point where I was I'd done pretty well in my career and I kind of slightly consciously or subconsciously had kind of I guess been like a role model or tried to coach and support other women other women of color because they would gravitate to me and I'd gravitate to them because I think Mm. you use the word space which I think is really important there's a lot of spaces where and it actually doesn't matter who you are but if you're not of a dominant group there's a lot of spaces where you might feel like you're the only one or part of a handful and then what tends to happen is you will kind of cling to each other Mm. um, or someone's doing something and you'll, you kind of gravitate to each other because you're like, oh, we're one of the few. Um, And so that had organically happened, but I reached a point where I was like, actually, I want to do more. And um, through my life, girls of color and women of color had been my closest friends. They've been kind of, My support network, often the really great friends I collect in different workplaces are women of colour. And I realised that for me from uh, that perspective, all of those women of colour I knew were awesome and I was pretty sure that they knew awesome women of colour. But, you know, if I moved in most of the spaces I was in, there weren't many of us in any one space. It was really in my personal circle where we were there and we thrived and we talked about our lives and our stories, but it didn't filter into the general kind of mainstream of things. Um, And so I was really keen to find a space where I could bring my experience of race and gender and not pick one. Because I think also Mm. we live in a world where, and I think it's human nature to compartmentalize stuff. Um, And I'm sure at some point, we'll talk about diversity, equity and inclusion. But for me, it's just like life stuff. I think that's uh, it's good to have words and language to describe a thing, especially for people who don't um, necessarily understand it. But to me, that's kind of the the formal words around just what it is for some people that is life. Um, and I found that, you know, you kind of had to pick you know, a women's network or would I have to pick, as I said, I'm Sri Lankan, you know, in the UK there's South Asian communities. Do I have to pick that? But for me I can't separate the two things and actually Mm. those two things have its own challenges but also their own superpowers. As I said, women of colour like my favourite people. They're freaking awesome. Um, And I wanted to bask in that and actually bring that community together. I didn't quite find one that wasn't, you know, specifically either just for professional women or just for leaders. I wanted Mm. women of colour to come together of all ages, whether they were a carer, whether they were an artist, whether they worked in charity, whether they were an entrepreneur, whether they worked um, for a big corporate. Um, And I just didn't find that space because I enjoy being with people that are super different, even if we're shared in our Um, experiences of gender and race. I think women of color are a big, broad, diverse, vibrant community and I don't Mm. just want to talk to women of color in jobs like mine, for example. So then I created My Skin My Story kind of by accident (laughs) because I couldn't quite find what I was looking for and for me I think that's something that has really become a message I try to share with others, which is um, don't settle for spaces that don't feel right for you or if you have to be in those spaces, make sure there is a space where you can be, you know, all that you need and have that kind of safety but also that kind of real talk um, and that kind of almost accepted by default thing, which I think Mm. when you share certain lived experiences, that's the thing. So, yeah, My Skin My Story, it's a global community community do kind of virtual events because um, it was birthed out of COVID times um, and it's really about connecting, empowering and elevating women of colour through the power of stories um, really for women of colour by women of colour but also every now and then engaging with allies along the journey. But, yeah, I'm all in, all about speeding up representation. Women of colour are amazing um, and I want all of us to be kind of bold, be real, be successful but on our own terms.
0: Yeah, I think that's so huge. And it's something that I definitely relate to, right? It's the whole adage of, okay, um, waiting for a seat at the table, pulling a seat up to someone else's table or just going, I'm just create my own table. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's that sort of energy of like, I couldn't find it. So I'm just going to create it because you knew that that was possible and it was necessary. And I have to say, I've gotten so much from those communities where, you know, you're accepted by default and whether that is through my identity as a black woman or my identity as, you know, exactly like you said, right. Like the groups kind of get siloed off into leadership tech entrepreneurs only like you know it becomes this blah 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 only and it's like how where can I walk into a room and just be all of it and any and any of it all at once and I think that that's what's so important because it's so in and of itself it's super affirming but it's also a rarity to step into a room with that feeling that experience that sentiment that shared value of like all of it, bring all of it to the party. There's no such thing as too much. There's no such thing as, you know, any old discriminatory, good old microaggression that you might have been (laughs) faced with as a woman of colour in this room. Here is a space for appreciation. So you mentioned in your timeline the journey for that being a couple of years, so like pre-pandemic, so 2018-ish, 19. So before kind of going into, I guess, what your career is now, which is full-time entrepreneurship, what were you doing before that? What sort of led you to the current state of your career, so to speak?
1: Yeah. Um, so I feel like a lot of um, my career was kind of doing, um, which I think a lot of people can relate to, it's like kind of taking advice around you, you um, kind of, you know, assessing the risks, and I would say I took a safe route, you know, as I said, I grew up um, with those kind of immigrant kid values and messages, Um, but also that view of kind of overachieving wasn't even overachieving, it was just like normal standard Mm. for like what it's... Expected um, in my community, I think in a lot of communities where there is awareness, whether it's explicitly spoken about or not, I don't think my parents explicitly said it to me, but because of race and because of other things, Mm. they know that the world is not built for us to succeed. Um, And so their way of equipping us with that is, you know, do the things and go into the careers where they've seen people like us at least get some success. Mm. um, And um and kind of, you know, get that stability, get that independence, uh, and then you can see where that takes you. So for me, um, I would say, you know, I started, as I said, because at 16 my parents didn't want me to be Alicia Keys. I was kind of like, well, fine, I'll do whatever, because I'm not <laughs> gonna be a player, so, no. so I, I guess I you know, I, I was pretty good at school. Um uh, and I kind of got to that point we can all relate to where you're about to go into university. I didn't really have any idea. I put a bunch of preferences. I got a few options, which I was very lucky for. Um, This is where I think I definitely uh, benefited from a private school education, which was Mm -hmm. much more affordable at the time and also in Sydney. There's like more layers. We were in quite a multicultural kind of um, inner city Uh, private school as opposed to the posh ones um that are on the water side or whatever where you can see the harbour bridge um so (laughs) even like there (laughs) are levels and that was not our level ours was like thank you for clarifying that though
0: because like growing (laughs) up in the UK you say private school and I I applied to two private schools for secondary school but because I didn't get the scholarships it just wasn't an option so they are like sprawling greens you know you drive past it and it's like what is it it's a castle a manor house so that's what I think of I think of the extremes of like public school and private and maybe you've got like grammar in between that looks like a private school but is you know a little bit more accessible and then you've got the faith schools in between but when you say private school it definitely goes all the way to this five-star resort looking
1: situation no ours is probably and this is why I think uh, I'm sure we'll stumble on many topics but this is where I think in Australia I really appreciate I mean sure class is a thing it's probably more Mm. socioeconomic whereas I feel like class and lack of mobility within classes is like way more of a straight jacket here in the UK And, and actually it's by living in the UK I've been able to reflect on my upbringing and first of all recognize that I've had pretty much a middle-class upbringing even though um, my dad had relatively humble beginnings. Mm. I never had to really worry about money um, and I got to go to a good school but it was probably on par of a faith school because it was a Christian school. It was in still a part of um, Sydney that has a, quite a big ethnic population. Yeah. Um, but I think I've learned the value of it more because it seems to mean a lot here. Compared Mm. to where I grew up, people didn't care really getting into university. It was about getting the marks. Like you didn't Mm. have to have this whole, you know, my parents did that or went there. It's just much more of a, again, it has its issues, but it's much more of a, like, uh, you're not held back by those things. So I was lucky that I had uncles and stuff who were, um, professionals I was, like, clueless, didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had an option to work in a graduate job at a bank or in Big Four at Deloitte. And they were, like, do Big Four, Deloitte. You know, you get to go to different clients. It's more, um, I I think it's perceived, you know, with more of a reputation. So I was, like, okay, sure. So that started me down the route of risk and audit, client-facing stuff, Mm -hmm. learning to be thrown out. Like, I was also super young. So I was, like, out at clients. Very young, pretending to know what I was doing. So I think it was that kind of trial by fire. Um, Came to London three years after that, continued in that, fell into. So again, I think I've always worked hard um, and I've always been super receptive of the things around me. I think um, it's not just about intelligence and an ability to. Have a good work ethic. Um, yeah. But also, I think I've had that emotional intelligence because I like people. I, you know, uh, psychology was one of my considerations going into university. I really like people. I, I look at dynamics, I observe, um, I want people to feel comfortable. So I think that, uh, as well as kind of being in different places, uh, going to different clients, having a different, you know, cultures in, terms of my parents versus school friends versus work people I just had this adaptability which I think has stood me in good stead so I again wasn't conscious of it but I continued down this route uh, again I had a couple of champions at work who were actually um middle-aged white men who mm-hmm. actually kind of really backed me and I think this is where it's the we call it allyship now but it's the power of like taking care and actually nurturing someone um,
0: yeah. because
1: for me, I, although I was ambitious, I wouldn't put my hand up for stuff. I just wanted to do well because it gives me a sense of satisfaction. Mm. So with a couple of cheerleaders, um, one of them actually sent me off to Chicago for three months when I was at Deloitte. That's the only reason I'm in London. I'd never thought of living wow. and working overseas. I got the bug, like, <laughs> by it. When I went to Chicago, I was like, this is freaking awesome and that's what paved the way for me to go to London. It was a personal decision. I was like, work mm. life and work in life in another country is so exciting and it was because of him. Um, he championed me. I did not put my hand up for that assignment. They um, He was like, we think you'd be great and then the second turning point was I was um, in risk and audit at Sainsbury's, a big UK retailer and um, my boss a white woman and then the CFO a white man were like we think you should take on this new role we've created in data and that's Mm. what happened I didn't really think about it uh and they thought okay we think you'll be good at it and that's kind of how I've gotten into where I am where I've taken all the good stuff I learned from risk and audit of like how to spot when things aren't right and recommended Mm -hmm. in a way that's, like, not offensive because people get defensive when you're like, okay, that's not great. Um, Also what good governance looks like, which is just about, like, how to make sure the decisions we make are based on something fair. Then the data stuff was like, okay, how do organisations use data to support decisions and to drive change? And then through all of that, so I, I kind of did that at a few places, Um, uh, at Sainsbury's and then a couple of banks and then I took on a role at Chanel heading up data governance and this coincided with that 2018-2019 personal reflection. I interviewed for that role at the end of 2019 um, and I actually said, um, for me, the next role I take, I want to be a sponsor for diversity, equity and inclusion as well because I want to be more intentional, use my platform for that. Um, because again, for me, it's personal too. Um, And that's kind of what led to this road of, I was uh, leading kind of this work on data, but then also on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'd launched My Skin, My Story in 2020 as well, which kind of really focused on stories and um, empowerment and um, really um, uplifting communities. And that's what led me to to leave that safe world and start my own business, true change, which is actually about working with organisations to build a more equitable world through data, diversity, equity, inclusion, and stories. So that's how the three things have come together. All come together. Oh my god! Amazing. Wow. I just just hearing
0: you speak, it's like a door opens another door, and it, I just keep going back to your uncle, <laughs> like. Having people in our lives that can have those candid conversations, like I've got a cousin like that, um, who's super transparent about his career growth and not in the sense of, oh, I got another promotion, but in the sense of, you know, I took an opportunity and decided to be self-employed because it was more like tax advantageous or, you know, I'm looking for investments or, you know, here's what my day rate is. Like, what? (sighs) mind blown but being able to actually take that holistic view to kind of say what do you want from your life if you want to travel this is a great career if you want to stay in one place again there's nothing wrong with that this could be a great career like alternatively or these are different organizations that are more prominent where we grew up and different things like that I think it's so important to have that transparency but I think also for those listening and to myself because it's occasionally good to talk to yourself remembering how important it is for us to then pass that on when we get there as well. So like the little nuggets that we take for granted, um, even just the way that we approach looking for opportunities ourselves, right. And the mindset of, okay, I'll try something new or, or I won't, or actually it's London for me. Like even the backstory to that can be so valuable to, to our peers or to those who are kind of uh, you know, a few steps behind us in this career sort of journey. What has been the most challenging part of all of this for you, though? Because I feel, I'm conscious we've got the highlight reel, right? But it, I don't know, like, I've never worked anywhere, that isn't the UK. Like I've traveled for business, yeah. the longest I've stayed is two weeks. And then I get on the yeah. flight and come back. So like what have been, and it doesn't necessarily need to be the travel. You could turn to me and yeah. go, "Jazz, travel was all good. But what yeah. were some of the challenges that you encountered and overcame as you, you built your career?
1: Yeah. So I think, I mean, there was one cultural element of like coming here. Although I will say like Australia to UK, it's probably the least painful Mm -hmm. cultural in terms of there is similar kind of sensibilities in the two places. But so, I mean, right off the bat, I came here and I started working at Barclays in audit. And the the first three months I kept hearing people mention to me, and in Australia this would be a compliment, and then it took me six months to realise that in the UK it's like a passive aggressive like insult of like don't do that but people would say oh you're really direct and in oh. australia that's a compliment here it but it took me a real while to figure out that it was a compliment <laughs> here and so i i did have to adjust um you know how i work to reflect that but i think this is where You know, I'll I'll draw the through line to diversity, equity, inclusion. Like I think this is the real challenge of unspoken and unwritten rules or Mm. coded language and coded rules. Very few people understand what's going on and it doesn't give people a fair shot because it takes us a while to figure out what's going on right Mm. and for me it was that that's just like a simple example right and it wasn't particularly a big deal um that was more around work style right but it like it took me six months to figure it out no one would tell me it was only by talking to other aussies who had Mm. kind of experienced it that i figured it out but then if we talk about things like other coded language. I think so much is unspoken um, in the UK and I started to realise like even my race and gender, especially like my, my race but like being Australian and brown, yeah. it's like those people would be really excited to talk about my Australianness. And it's like the second I open my mouth, oh what what city are you from? Oh, Sydney, I've been to this part of Sydney. Where did you live? And oh, um, you know, something about the cricket or blah blah blah. I have this mm. relative that lives <laughs> here in Perth or whatever. Like telling me, you know, engaging so much on that. But that level of curiosity was not there was nothing about my brownness. It's like to really dive into one element of my identity wholeheartedly and ignore another one it started to make me look at my own race and ethnicity differently because obviously in Australia we were all Australian so it's like Mm -hmm. a different thing whereas here I was like well why is my brownness something you're uncomfortable with like how can you talk at nauseum about Australia Mm -hmm. and just like ignore another really big part of me which is actually a part of me that you see before you hear my accent right like you have clocked that I'm a brown woman before you've clocked I'm an Australian brown woman yeah you know um and so I think it it was something where I had to kind of deal with um it drives your own kind of internal reflection around actually how I had at various points of in my life, distance myself from my brownness so I would be more palatable to other people, but also so I didn't have to deal with the pain of trying to reconcile two identities that the world says doesn't naturally sit next mm-hmm. to each other. Um, so I think you know that that was one thing that I just. I mean, I had some really strange things where people would come up to me and just like you know when you're meeting people new co-workers or whatever, in the first, second or third conversations who still really don't know each other, mm. talking again about my Australianness and then talking about, I don't know, the last time they went to Australia. And then a couple of times this happened to me where white English people would then say, oh, but Australia's so racist, isn't it? And like the the subtext oh. there is like Yeah, the subject there is you must be so glad you're here and not there. But also I'm like, why are you saying that to me, first of all? And why do you feel that that's okay? Okay. And now I'm having to sit here and think or comment on the difference between race in the UK and Australia. And I would say that I have felt it more here because, again, it's all a lot of it's unspoken. And so you feel Mm. more uncomfortable don't really know what's going on. Whereas in Australia, if someone has an issue with your race or ethnicity, they'll just tell you. They'll just tell you. And and if they don't, there's like nothing, no weird Mm -hmm. under the under the like carpet dynamic that yeah. It's either
0: unspoken or it's like turned into an awkward novelty.
1: Yeah. And and hmm. so I think that was yeah, I think that was something that um in, again, I've turned that into a positive where this has just made me hyper aware of not just my situation, but how all types of people who are othered in some way, like how it can be different where you navigate. I think also other points in my career, I mean, I've had, um, I'm used to like doing well. And, mm. you know, that high fever thing is like when you fail, you really like beat yourself up right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, first of all, you're not used to it. And it feels like the end of the world. And um, I, I remember when I was at Sainsbury's in audit, I led this one audit um, for this uh, female senior leader who actually used to be the head of audit. She hired me and then she had moved into another department that I audited. And she was so, she gave me like a real, really negative feedback around how it went. Cause it was like, wow. it was a, it was a red order, which basically is bad. So red, amber, green, right. Um, oh, actually maybe it wasn't, but anyway, there were some like solid findings in there. She didn't like how it had gone and you know, in my head, it was like the end of the world. I remember like going to the bathroom and crying. I've done that, right? I I can seem like very confident and put together, but I I have definitely a handful times gone to the bathroom and cried. And I think we it's great to admit to that because I think sometimes. You know, we we beat ourselves up going, oh, this is work. Why am I letting it get to me? Well, it's because we spend so much time at work. Oh, we yeah. invest a lot of our We take it. it as
0: part of our identity and our value. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, it takes it's taken me years to detach the two.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, that's such a good point of... Um, Actually, how do you make sure that your validation and sense of value isn't tied to your work? Which Mm. actually when you talk to like creatives and stuff who work in the arts, that's a really important thing because work is so volatile. But I think we can take a page out of their books because actually it's just not a healthy dynamic, right? Mm. Well, I wasn't there yet. I was very like, um, yeah, that kind of sense of failure and letting someone down that you really respect and um, thinking about... Not just letting them down, but also I thought I was good at this. Like, what does that actually mean for my capabilities? And then also what will people think? Will they lose respect for me? So I think there were all those feelings um, and those challenges happen. But I think it's about um, realising sometimes when things go wrong, it's not about you. (laughs) <laughs> sometimes it's the dynamic, sometimes it's the politics. Yeah. But then also figure out what's the thing that you can take away and do better next time and then not hold on to the failure of it all. And I think that's something that over my life I've gotten used to. I guess the last example I'll mention is also um, being comfortable with saying no to stuff. I've always been good at saying no to things um, but I I. Th- I see how other people struggle with it and I guess mm. where I've taken it forward is for me having that ability to protect what I believe is the boundaries of professionalism, acceptable workload, those other things. I've always had a strong sense of self of like, yeah, sometimes that um, needs to be compromised like on a exceptional basis when things um, need to get done. But I've always been super mm. protective of that. I guess for me how i flipped it and where – I like doing it most of the time, but it can take a toll, which is challenging, is because I've had that strength. I really take on as a personal responsibility speaking up against things that I think aren't quite right. And what happens is also being in the skin that I'm in, you can be seen as more difficult and more problematic because you're a woman or, uh, you know, an ethnic minority or whatever it could be, especially when you're speaking up about those things, but actually speaking about anything, right? Like sometimes Mm. you'll be in a meeting and someone's really unprofessional. I will be the person that goes and tells my boss (laughs) and says, they were like junior staff members in that room. They should not think that that was okay and we need to address it. You know, I have been that person that said, I'm not going to work with that person because they have actually been specifically disrespectful disrespectful uh usually it's kind of around um or perhaps sexist behavior and i will yeah. actually draw that line it hasn't happened often because um you know i know we have to adapt and work with characters we don't always mm. love um, but i think speaking up for me is something i take seriously but it takes a toll yeah which is why having those spaces and those cheerleaders and those friends and those um, support networks is super important because it can really, really take a toll. And unfortunately, it's often on um, minoritized voices to do that, especially the last few years based on what has been happening in organizations. So I think that's definitely challenging and knowing when to pick your battles. So you're not just the troublemaker, right? Because I hold my tongue a lot, even though I speak (laughs) up a lot. I know I can't. (laughs) on <laughs> uh, you can't it's a job on top of the job right so it's
0: like if I was speaking up even in a practical sense right if you spend your whole day in meetings mediating giving feedback and all of those things you know after a while it takes a toll on you both energetically but in terms of the amount of hours that you have in a day to dedicate to said yeah. employer
1: yeah
0: this week's podcast is sponsored by Ambitious Career Strategy, the six-week group program that shows you how to turn every career lemon into the juiciest lemonade. Learn to own your impact, show up authentically, and get stuff done to reach your career goals. This is the program designed to stay with you beyond the six weeks and give you a plan that fits like Cinderella's slipper. Go to justjazz.co forward slash career strategy to join the next cohort. I think that's so, so important to acknowledge as well, because I think it's something that if you aren't used to advocating for yourself and others, you take for granted um, or you rely on the same voices to speak up when you've seen the same thing that I've seen. Yeah. And this is not me saying that it's not difficult to get comfortable or confident enough to do that. But it's me also saying that at some point, if we do want to see change, we need to trust and believe that we have a responsibility we have a part that we can play in the same way that folks like Sathya are as well um so yeah let's let's share the load of advocacy and uh not not cast a blind eye because I think that part of it is all too easy to do for sure
1: yeah definitely
0: yeah I think that's also one thing kind of going back to just you kind of going into data. That's another thing when we first met that we kind of connected around because I never expected myself working anywhere near any data. Um, But (laughs) I spend my days talking about product analytics and data and trends. And the people behind the data has always been a huge thing that has helped me kind of wrap my mind around it. Whereas sort of traditional math, as it was introduced to me in school, we did not get along in any way, shape, or form, like, whatsoever. But I do think it's something that's really, really exciting where we can carve out career journeys that are not defined by the traditional topics and subjects and themes, but they're more defined by, like, how we evolve and grow and our, our aptitude, right? There's a very depressing, de- deeply depressing um statistic or a research you know a result out of research which says that you know men are hired on potential women are hired on yeah. sort of capability and I'm really grateful that I meet folks like you or a few of my clients where, which is proving the opposite that they have had many times a sponsor sort of tap them on the shoulder and say I think you'd be perfect for this and even in the face of them kind of going yeah I don't think I'm ready for it yet um are you sure <laughs> like yeah are you lost yeah. was that email for me did you mean to copy me in but actually creating a world where we're able to kind of push those boundaries and we're not kind of held back by those stereotypical um statistics and able to carve you know this podcast is called the limitless career create careers without the limits without the rules of "oh, can't do this can't go there can't pivot into this industry can't go full-time on business can't do both you know all of these sort of rules that are sometimes self-imposed sometimes socialized into us or sometimes just picked up by osmosis right so you look around and you see nobody nobody in general doing the thing that you want to do much less nobody who you can identify with in some way shape or form doing the thing that you want to do you automatically then just assume it's a no then the universe
1: says it's a no because i'm not seeing it (laughs) yeah and i love that because so there is a a reason why I moved into entrepreneurship when I did. Mm. It happened after I started My Skin, My Story because My Skin, My Story was the first way that I met women of colour who were entrepreneurs. Mm. I only knew one woman and she was a woman of colour before that that was an entrepreneur. Everyone else I knew was like me doing kind of, um, you know, they were full time employed by often large, stable organizations that had been their career. And I would have never thought that. And then actually, as these ideas were forming, I still wouldn't have done it. But it was these other women who were women of color entrepreneurs and just communities in my skin, my story, they were like, just do it, you can do it. And then I was meeting other people who were just doing it. And they're like, it's not this huge thing. So I think there's mm-hmm. also something around learning to a bet on yourself and also the fact that we aren't often or always surrounded by the people that um, will give us that confidence and inspiration. So how can we find those circles? Cause again, that one uncle who had um, who kind of directed me to go into big four rather than banking, they were still like if I I'm still lucky that I had some um, aunts and uncles working in the professional world, but still that they all work in kind of one job or they stay in those safe organisations. I kind of had to make these um, more risk-taking decisions without input from yeah. my family or even necessarily um, not having real examples with the close friends in my life. It was actually how do you bet on yourself as well? Because actually I would say it was more the exception than the rule that I had people in my life that could advise me on my career. And I think many people will relate to that. I mean, that's also why with My Skin My Story, I try to do these sessions around like what on earth does it mean to get on a board or to be a trustee? I've become one, but that's because I was searching out this information for my community. Mm. And actually it was because I was, being super vocal on LinkedIn about my skin, my story, because I wasn't talking about me. I felt confident talking about that because it was for yeah. something else, someone else, and I'd somehow become more visible through that. And then I got this opportunity to be a trustee uh, for a charity, bringing in diversity, equity, inclusion expertise. But again, I I didn't know anyone that was sitting on a board or who had become a trustee. I didn't know anyone really who was an entrepreneur, let alone one that was a woman of colour that did like a safe degree. I did an IT degree and I wasn't a techie IT person. I can't make an app. In my (laughs) head, entrepreneurs (laughs) were people who made apps or whatever. Um, And so I think that whole limitless career bit is also being aware of how we counteract limits, not just that we put on ourselves, but where actually we're not having the opportunities near us and I think taking advantage of how we can build our voice in other ways whether it's through socials whether it's through finding other communities I think again um, many of us from minoritized communities we we can't just pull out a phone and talk to like your dad or an uncle whatever Mm -hmm. about how to get a financial advisor or what how to negotiate a new salary because they would just be like, take what you want. When I went in for my Chanel um, final interviews, I had a mantra, which was I would normally I'm terrible at trying to like negotiate things or get pay rises. And you know what I yeah. did? I was like, what would a white man do right now? And I'm not mm-hmm. dissing white men. I'm saying actually I want to have that confidence. And I, it was the first time I negotiated a salary that was like me not reducing myself and thinking what would be an acceptable amount and actually saying this is what I think I'm worth and actually talking to people, talking to recruiters to actually find out because I didn't know how much someone at that level could get paid. So I think, again, how do we take the effort to not just bet on ourselves but also do the research where some of us don't have the luxury of having people on speed dial that know all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: Definitely, it's the it's the under the carpet things or the quote unquote tricks of the trade, whatever it may be. But yeah, it's definitely a conversation that I was having with my friend, who's also a fellow entrepreneur, and just saying, you know, what we're doing now means that you know the next generation or children, should we choose to have them, are going to grow up with the knowledge that mummy and daddy have a financial advisor or mummy and mummy, right? Parents, yeah. <laughs> we have a family lawyer, right? we have somebody that we call in the instance of this and somebody that helps support us over here and there and that's going to be that's going to be commonplace that's going to be their sort of new normal their new normal will be well few aunts and uncles are entrepreneurs and the others are executives and some of the others are digital nomads and you know what have you heck content creators right all of these different new pathways that then inherently start to shape what they believe is possible for their futures. And I think that that's something that's really, really exciting and that happens by us proactively sharing that insight and that information. Quite often we that then becomes another one of the things that we take for granted that, oh, yeah, I, I, do, I do have the details of an accountant you can trust or, you know, or somebody who yeah. can help you just get some simple contracts and won't charge an arm and a leg, won't talk to yeah. you in legalese, won't, you know confiscate kind of what is actually happening and will deliver a good service. And it's, yeah. Wow. And
1: also just ask each start asking each other what we're getting paid. Like, mm. honestly, I think there's just so much stuff where, um, I think keeping stuff private doesn't really help a lot of people. Again, you need to find the people that you trust and things like that. But I think mm. some simple stuff of like, as you say, good accountants, like, how do you approach having a conversation around pay with your boss? Like if you feel uncomfortable, ask your friends, do we ever have these conversations? I feel like we don't. And then actually, you know, talking about pay, because why all these inequalities exist and the lack of opportunities is we have not been sharing that information. And it's particularly communities that have been divided and conquered, separated, Mm -hmm. fragmented, we're also kind of, internalised and taught to like not, you know, we haven't got that wealth of collective knowledge because yeah. we're not together. And um, and so I think it's really, really, really important. And I think in many ways right now is an interesting crossover generation where for me being kind of a kid of immigrants, I am having within one generation a significantly more successful kind of mm. life than my parents. And actually that's the case for a lot of my friends. I have a lot of friends whose parents were refugees, right, and, like, yeah. also working class. And I, I see that also in the UK where I meet people they're like, yeah, my parents worked in the factory or did whatever. But how do we make sure we support each other? Because actually it's great that we're coming up and doing well, but we're learning everything for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know and how do we make all this stuff more democratic in terms of why do you have to be a few people in the know to benefit from certain things? And yeah. I think career wise, we want more people to have more opportunities with careers, right? Rather than saving exactly. it for a few a- a- anointed people. Um, <laughs> which, exactly. yeah, I remember. I remember seeing that and being like, as grads at work, I remember us going, oh, that's the golden boy. They're all behind that guy. Mm. You know, you don't want that. Um, so actually, if you see that happening, make sure you're finding those like cheerle- cheerleaders and people that you can have those trusted conversations with.
0: A hundred percent. And I would
1: even kind of go as far as saying, like, even from an
0: employer standpoint, when I speak with recruiters, L&D professionals, HR partners, they want the applications, <laughs> They want the talent. They do not want to feel like I'm choosing between two of the same candidates over and over again. They really want to be introduced to new talent. They want to see those skills and those strengths. So I would say to anybody who's applying for roles at the moment, that's listening, just go for it. You legit have nothing to lose. Put yourself forward because you could be exactly who they are looking for. Um, And we, you know, we can't, It's a two-way street, right? We can't have all these organisations saying, I want to hire diverse talent. We want to be a more inclusive place and and all of that stuff. And then the opportunities pop up and we don't apply. And when I say the opportunities pop up, I'm not even talking about some special diversifying the pipeline programme. I'm just talking about the regular, regular application that is there with the algorithm behind it that will not discriminate against you and the human behind it that's being more conscious about how they make decisions They are waiting. They are actually just waiting. Um, And in that sense, we can get to a space where there's not one or two of us in the room or, you know, and whatever us is for you, but we can show up and be in those spaces um, and open those doors.
1: Yeah, and, again, where we have those moments of crisis of self-confidence where we're like, I don't know if I want to do this, Get on the phone with one of your friends or cheerleaders that always bids you up and get that push. 100%. Don't be afraid. I feel like we never ask our friends. I've started to do this now with some of my girlfriends where it's like actually ask someone to have a look at your CV. Just mm. second hour. Like why don't we do that for each other? It's like mm-hmm. our work is a separate thing. But it can be as simple as that. If you're not as confident, you know, yeah. do that. How can we use... Um, each other to kind of support and, um, push each other up. I think there's, there's, we don't have to feel bad about it is I think my only Mm -hmm. point here. I think we've always felt a bit like, oh, I don't want to burden someone with questions about this or that. And it's like, people want to help. You know, usually people are glad to do it. Um, so don't be afraid to ask, I think is also part of that. Yeah. That's huge.
0: What's your career teaching you right now?
1: Um, that there are different paths to get to a <clears throat> a kind of satisfied and fulfilled career. I think mm. um, for me right now I'm able to align what I'm good at with what I'm passionate with yeah. with like a higher purpose. So that it's not to say that there aren't hard moments. Um, I'm sure lots of entrepreneurs will say it's more challenging than having a day job, but it's because I've got the passion, the purpose and, you know, I'm work, playing to my strengths in terms of skills. It helps me get through that stuff. Like there's a reason yeah. for doing that. Um, and that's what it's teaching me. It's also teaching me to like stick to my guns. So I would say that six, no, three or four months ago, I had a moment where, I, so I'd been running my business for six months. I had a pretty good start you have to have all these conversations. You don't know if it will lead to pipeline. And it was the end of March and I was like I'd just finished a workshop and I looked ahead and I was like I have nothing confirmed coming mm. in, like at all. So I started reaching out to my old contacts and I was like, oh, maybe I'll just do like a regular data governance contract for like three days a week for a few yeah. months just to like take the stress out of it for myself. In the meantime, something else ended up coming in, but I was having this conversation with an old colleague at Deutsche Bank, and they were pretty much offering me a data contract for part time for yeah. like six months. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. Like when <laughs> I was actually there, I was like, oh my God, this is like so going backwards, and I don't want to do that. I do have the luxury of a financial safety net of mm-hmm. like some money I saved from Chanel. And I was like, I just need to stick to it. So I think that's Mm. the other thing I'm learning, which is don't freak myself out. Um, And in those moments where things are looking a bit precarious, I have to kind of continue to have belief that I'm doing the right thing. I know I'm doing the right thing, but I'm like not earning, you know, what I used to and I have to be okay with that and it will be volatile. Mm. But I realised that this is what I want to do because when I had the option to do something like what I used to do yeah when that was real I was like oh I definitely don't want to do that
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) you you got the offer on the platter and I was like oh it doesn't look as nice as it did before
1: oh oh good fun where can people connect with you and follow your journey yeah sure so um I, In terms of My Skin, My Story, it's a community that's open to women of colour and allies as well. So we have a website, myskinmystory.com. Um, on Insta, myskinmystory underscore. Also there's a LinkedIn page. Um, feel, feel free to find me on uh, LinkedIn as well, Satya Bala. And then in terms of the business, um, truechangeoneword.co Um, and yeah, I'm open for business, you know, the hustle is real, um, (laughs) and I'm definitely kind of getting a lot of satisfaction in terms of, you know, doing things creatively and bringing different elements together, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion with data, with a bit of storytelling, um, with a bit of governance. So yeah, that's how people can find me and the socials world is new, but Mm -hmm. I'm new to me. Um, but that's also been a fun learning journey as part of all of this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, thank you. We will definitely include those in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your journey. Thank you so much for graciously sharing it with us today.
1: Thank you, Shannon.
0: What an episode. Want to continue the conversation? Join the Limitless Letter to get weekly resources for your high-achieving career in a place where we all get what it means to embrace ambition and declare your desires. Go to justjazz.co forward slash join and I'll see you there.